tell that people brought their Bibles because this is a wonderful old school church. You had live announcements instead of video announcements. You actually had ushers. Uh, I think that's the first usher sighting I've seen since 2020. And uh, I said, Pastor, do you have like four amazing, precious ladies that come and count the offering on Monday morning like we used to do in the old school days. And he said, yes, they have the offering counter. So I, I, I got to tell you, it is a joy to do some time travel back into. And I say that as a compliment. Uh, I think we have gotten too crazed in our technology. Uh, but I got to tell you, today was an unexpected, massive lift to my soul. I pastored for a decade in Sacramento, planted, uh, it was our second church we planted in our life, real life church in uh, this portion of North Sacramento called Natomas. And Dwayne and Shirley Armstrong were there working with uh, Sobe Malik. And for 10 years, Dwayne and Shirley Armstrong did nothing but help build that great new fledgling work into a dynamic church, every Bible study, every gathering. And when I walked in and saw Dwayne and Shirley Armstrong here today, I just, it brought me to tears. Would you guys stand up? This congregation, I know you know them. The, this is... So, how many know Dwayne and Shirley Armstrong? Okay, so, I know you don't know me, but... I was their pastor for 10 years, so now you have to love me uh, uh, more than you did before. Like, okay, he must be a, a decent guy here if Dwayne and Shirley went to his church for 10 years. So I feel like it's a wonderful opportunity to be home this week. And my beautiful bride of uh, 40 years, we celebrated our 40th uh, anniversary of marriage in August, um, and we both celebrated in the last couple months, our 60th birthday. So we, we both turned 60, married 40 years. These are some big Bible numbers that are starting to add up here. So we have uh, had four great kids, still do, um, and we have 11 of our grandkids. I think I actually, this is my favorite picture. Actually, go back to my picture of Karen, that first photo. There's my favorite photo. Just keep that up there for a moment. That's my favorite picture of my bride. Uh, that's circa 19, probably 60. 566. It's probably Easter Sunday. Little matching purse with the dress, the barrette, the little page boy haircut, the little bent wrist. She's so feminine and she's just so, so beautiful. And <clears throat> But it's the gleam in her eye. <clears throat> Very few things in this life give a woman that gleam. That woman probably once in her life gets the gleam in her eye. I think God was showing Karen her future. I think Karen saw the future I think this is what Karen saw. Next picture, if you will. <laughs> now, we're just building a friendship here. That's a little strong. Uh, uh, just keep that up there for a moment. Go back to Karen. Go back to Karen real quick. Go back to Karen. Look at her delight. Now go back, go back to me right there. That's what she saw. Keep it up there for a moment. I got my little twisty velvet short pants on. I got my little patent leather shoes. Uh, my poor brother to my left has his prison outfit on there. Uh, we already have the old man pants that is swallowing us up there. My sister to the right, you can't see her hat. She had a big plate, a white plate hat on. Uh, that's Easter. That's Fresno, 1965, I heard. Uh, my 
my dad worked in the timber industry, lumber mills, and he was working up in the uh, Sierra Nevadas, and he was working down in the mountains there near Yosemite doing some logging. My dad had a chainsaw. It was his pride and joy. It was like his Harley Davidson, his chainsaw. I still remember smelling the oil on that chainsaw, and we couldn't touch the chainsaw. That was his way he made a living. But it was also, my dad also gave us our haircuts. And um, I said, hey, Pops, did you by chance combine the chainsaw with that haircut right there? But I, I tell our students that you put a pair of skinny jeans on that kid, that's a modern worship leader in any church in America, that hairdo right there. Way ahead of my time. So those two little, two little lovebirds met, got married in 1982, and the next picture is um, our grandkids, and there's actually one missing in here. Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, we have 11 now. So little Jovi's missing, but uh, those are our 11 grandkids when we were pastoring in Sacramento where Dwayne and Shirley were part of our church. The little fellow right there in front of Karen, that's Elias. He's a spark plug. He calls Karen Gaga. That's a pretty cute nickname for grandma, Gaga, Gaga. Till he turned to me in a public place and called me Kaka. Um, <laughs> Which in Spanish means something. Uh, uh, how many, in Spanish, that's, I said, you're not going to call grandpa that. Uh, uh, so we immediately paid for a speech therapist to get that out of his mouth as fast as possible. I found the money uh, to help with that so he could get uh, my right name up there. But the Lord has been so faithful, so good. And in these difficult times where we're seeing families annihilated, you know, I was sharing out of Micah chapter 7 last week at the university and correlating it to the words of Jesus that there will be enmity between sons and fathers, daughters and mothers, mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws. Both the Old Testament prophet Micah said that that would be a trait of judgment upon a nation. I've never seen families more polarized. I've never seen more grandparents who are not allowed to see their grandchild because the daughter-in-law is at odds with the mother-in-law using the newborn as a pawn uh, because of social ideology that has just, uh, not just tainting, but is destroying our country. And we are seeing the fulfillment of scripture. And I bet if I gave an altar call in this service at the end, for all the grandparents that have a heavy heart right now because there's alienation from grandchildren or sons and daughters-in-laws, uh, you'd probably be shocked at how many people would walk up uh, for prayer today. So I'm very grateful. Every given day is another day that the Lord <clears throat> is giving us grace upon grace uh, with our family, but I'm also highly cognizant of what is happening uh, in our land. We're going to dive in in just a moment to this great text found in 2 Kings chapter 8. Thank you so much for praying. Uh, for us, we have a, uh, our, our school has been watering this earth. Many of the pastors in Indiana came through North Central Bible College, now university. It took that journey like a lot of our Bible schools did in the 1990s, becoming a more comprehensive uh, uh, university, being able to give a space for business leaders and future teachers and to come and enjoy that Pentecostal ethos. I will tell you this, 
Of all of our AG schools, we have some great schools, but I, I was always drawn to North Central because it was the most still like a Bible college here in this country. Uh, Don Gifford, our great superintendent, serves on the board of regents at North Central. And it is it has a tremendous touch of heaven. I was a pastor for 38 years, went back, got my master's degree in my mid-40s, started a PhD program at Gonzaga University and completed that doctoral program. Um, so I have, I've gone through the whole academic journey, but at my heart, I was a pastor. So I, I signed everything PSH, which stands for Pastor Scott Hagen. They think it stands for President Scott Hagen, but I'm a pastor educator and I profoundly believe in education, higher education to hone the talent because I tell our students, just because you're born for something, you still have to learn how to do it. Um, just because you're born to do it doesn't mean you know how to do it. So you have to learn what you were born to do. So I believe deeply in that formation processes. However, we're seeing higher education go off the rails. The number one job of a Christian university president in America right now, and I share this with other presidents, as I'm in my sixth year now, is that the number one job in this role is to protect the university from heresy, from heresy. We think about heresy getting into churches. Heresy is ripping through our universities at levels that I can't even imagine. It's like an assault uh, against our schools. Um, I know we have liberal arts curriculum. You got the humanity, the humanities, arts and sciences. A lot of Christian schools then put scripture alongside and say, hey, we're a Christian university because we make a place for scripture alongside the arts and sciences and the humanities. I can't speak for those schools. I can just speak for North Central. We don't put the scripture alongside the liberal arts curriculum. The scripture rises and sits above our curriculum. It sits above it. And what I mean by that is that we're trying to raise up <clears throat> biblical biologists and scripture first scientists and people who will be part of what I call Great Commission U, uh, that no matter where you go and how you use your discipline, you're going to have a Pentecostal legitimacy about your life, and we are going to put the word of God above the curriculum, not alongside the curriculum. And so pray for us. Uh, people don't care what you've built in the last three years, uh, whether you're a pastor or a college president, they don't care what you built. They want to know one thing. Are you still telling the truth? Has the last three years beat the truth out of you? Has the tension uh, of the Bermuda Triangle in 2020 of COVID, the racial unrest in the election in 2020, those three things all hit within a six-month period? Did that Bermuda Triangle, did you fly into that and have you disappeared from the truth-telling radar? I'm grateful to God. There may be far fewer people using the term Christian, but those who are using it actually mean it in our day and age. And so I just want to commend you. What a great atmosphere. You're very fortunate that God has brought you these beautiful leaders and pastors. Got here early for the prayer meeting. I've never seen that. I travel every weekend. I've never come an hour ahead of time and seen that many people at a prayer meeting on a Sunday morning. So you got something wonderful and good happening. Amen. How many love the word of God? How many love the the word of God. Amen. Just get your Bibles ready. I just want to make you aware very fast. I don't want to distract from our teaching time here. I want to get into the word. I have two important resources. Let me explain how these resources work. The first one is the latest one that just uh, came out. The Lord blessed my life by allowing me to participate in one of the most wonderful projects I, I've seen in this country in the last year. I got a uh, reached out to by a publisher, and they wanted to create a new gift book 
for first responders, primarily police officers and firefighters. This and military folks, people who in the last couple of years have held this country together, nurses, uh, police officers, firefighters, um, urban school teachers, uh, people that drive buses as volunteers, people that help care for the elderly. So the book is entitled On Call Heroes. It's a hardback book. It's a gift book that is filled with beautiful, beautiful time life level uh, photography. I'm not going to do story hour here with you, but I just want to show you how this book works and how you can apply it to the city of West Lafayette. Um, This photo, I got a chance to write the short captions. This photo of the black police officer with the tear coming down his cheek is one of the greatest photos I've ever seen in my life. And so I had the privilege of writing the small captions. Uh, Rarely is the wind at your back at precisely the moment you need. It's usually in your face making you stronger. And then there's a scripture verse. This firefighter uh, wiping the soot from his eyes. I write, when you serve others, the bitterness from not being served is washed away. And then lastly, this military hero pulling a wounded soldier from the battlefield. I simply write, what made the good Samaritan good was that he removed abandonment. In other words, it's not about turning something wrong into something right. It's about turning someone lonely into someone loved. And so, and then it has a scripture. This book is designed as a gift to first responders. First of all, if you're in this room, you are a first responder. We uh, give you a standing O and a gold medal today for your work for our communities. If your sons or daughters or grandkids work in any role as a first responder, this resource is a magnificent gift. The holidays are coming up, Thanksgiving, Christmas. But I really want to challenge uh, any of the business leaders in here um, that this, what churches are doing across the country is that these holidays, they're giving this as a gift to all the police officers in their city. They're giving it as a gift to the firefighters in their city. And so we want to make a way for you to do that. But for you personally, if you're a first responder, uh, if you have a family member, this book, On Call Heroes, is a great resource. It's a great gift and a great conduit that you can give to uh, local police uh, precincts. Churches are putting a card and a ribbon around it, going down with some cookies and saying, hey, there's 12 firefighters here. We just want to give this this Thanksgiving to you as a present and as an outreach from our church. So that is that. Secondly, just real fast, is there's a resource that we have today uh, called The Language of Influence. This little book on leadership has made its way all over the world um, from the clubhouse of the, or the locker room of the Green Bay Packers and the Yankees and different ones to Warren Buffett's energy company, uh, uh, got 500 of these, gave them to their employees. Um, it's a book that is filled. You can read the entire book in 20 minutes. It's filled with uh, several hundred starter questions on leadership. And these are just simple ideas of a way to think. This is designed for you to give. How many of you work in a tough place? You work in a bad place. You're a tough place. Jeff Carlson lifted up his. How many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. Uh, Now you don't want to lift up your hand. Um, You can give this book to the the Antichrist. And I mean that uh, not just tongue in cheek. This is designed to give to anybody. They're as evil as could be. 
They could be people you work for, with, or people that work under you. Companies get this, people get this leadership tool. It has a little small group discussion guide, but it's really designed also for personal leadership. And it is filled with ideas and ways to think about leadership that has really been transformative uh, for people individually, both in the church and outside the church. And it's a great tool. So again, business leaders are getting this for their teams, their their employees, their staff. Um, Where's the young man I met? Daniel, right here. Now, I'm gonna tell you straight up, Daniel, you're not in trouble. Um, I looked over and I saw you lifting up your hands in worship and singing uh, at the top of your lungs. I never did that till I was 20 years old. And to see a young man lift up his hands in worship and sing at the top of his lungs told me everything I need to know about this, the, the grace on this church. And so to find out your name was Daniel is powerful because I'm gonna talk about him in a minute, but this is yours. I know you can stick it next to your, your uh, desk and I'm telling you kids that are 10, 11, 12 years old, school clubs, uh, clubs on campuses have used this resource. I don't have very many of those out there, but those books are all available for you. I think they'll be of great help to you. In the book of Daniel, we're gonna be in 2 Kings 8 in just a moment. It talks about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, the word education is used three times. It's fascinating. Sometimes after being a pastor, I wondered if being in education removed me from the front lines of spiritual warfare. Little did I see in 2017 where our nation was headed. Education has become the tip of the spear. It's become the battleground. Look what's happening in our public schools. Look for the look at the territory that the enemy is seeking to take. Who knew that so many people with such uh, um, really perverse ideologies were sitting on school boards across the United States of America and using that secret space to implement things that are not just, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking about destructive ideologies that are ripping the hearts and consciences out of our kindergartners. And then ripping families apart because of knowing how to, how do I mitigate this and pick sides? It's diabolical what's happening. It's Daniel chapter one, going after the young, re-educating them with culture as a way to get their heart loosened up for the real aim, which was to have them bow their knee to Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue. Because all of this is going to metastasize into idolatry, friends. All of it. And this division over bowing a knee to the world's offering and idolatry as opposed to the things that we hold true. Well, Daniel said as a 15-year-old, the entire Bible story was reduced to four 15-year-olds. Imagine that. Would God, God put his whole story in the hands of four 15-year-old boys and their next move. Would you do that? Would you put your whole company in the hands of four 15-year-old boys right now? The entire book of Daniel is predicated on the integrity of what historians tell us were probably 15-year-old, 16-year-old boys. We know that Daniel said, I'm not going to enjoy the culture of Babylon here. Um, We're going to stay in a more narrow diet and examine our life. After 10 days, they were examined, and the Bible says they were found to be 10 times better, 10x leaders. That's why your name Daniel is very important, young man. Daniel was found to be 10 times better, not in an arrogant way, not 10 times better than you, but 10 times more effective and competent than anything that Wall Street, Hollywood uh, could produce or the Silicon Valley. Anything that the world could produce, that Nebuchadnezzar's regime could produce, these teenage boys were found to be 10 times, they were 10x, 
10X leaders. Daniel carried that 10X quality all the way into his 80s. Daniel chapter five, it talks about that scene where this severed hand appears on the wall and writes at Bel, uh, Belshazzar, or Belshazzar's final dinner party that night. No one could read the writing on the wall. We're right there in America again. Nobody can interpret the times. Nobody can read the writing on the wall right now in this country. The best, again, that Silicon Valley, Wall Street, or Hollywood, nobody can interpret the writing on the wall. So they pull out the 85-year-old. And this isn't 85 like dog years. This was like 85. These are like Bible dog years. This is like a real 85-year-old. They bring up Daniel after 70 years of captivity as the shift is happening to the Medo-Persian Empire from Babylon, you're about to see this mid 80 year old read the writing on the wall. So 70 years after becoming 10X, he was still 10X. That's why the touch of the Holy Spirit on our life is what gives us that lifelong message, friends. It doesn't diminish and go from a raging fire as a teenager to a little dimly lit pilot light in our 80s. We can remain sharp, we can remain interpretive, we can have a keen mind that can interpret dreams, solve the riddle, and solve the difficult problems. That was the reputation of the 80-year-old, not the 18-year-old. So 10X, this powerful thing. So when you said your name was Daniel, young man, I couldn't believe it. I go, okay, this is, this is a magnificent, magnificent, not coincidence, but just a little signal from heaven. All righty, 2 Kings chapter 8. The Bible says, we'll put the scripture up here. Um, we'll go past those. Yeah, go to the scripture here. It says, now Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, arise and go with your husband and sojourn. I want you to circle the word sojourn. Wherever you can sojourn for the Lord has called for a famine. So Elisha speaking to the woman whose son, you remember the story, uh, just a few chapters earlier, where the woman had no child, Elisha stays at the house, blesses her with the prophecy that she'll bear a son. The Lord loved to, get, loved to give older women their first baby. That's a very common Bible miracle. And this woman bore a son. You know the story well. He goes out one day. He's a little boy, old enough to be off mama's lap, not old enough to be doing a full day's work with dad. He's out there, cries out, my head, my head. We don't know if it was an aneurysm, what it was, but the boy's dead. They take the body, they put him on the mother's lap, and it says where the child died. The child was dead. She is obviously crestfallen, mystified. She takes the boy, puts him in Elisha's bed because she had a prophet's chambers. So the itinerant prophet had a place to rest. She put him in his bed and now made this his own crisis of faith. And she cried out, I told you I didn't want a kid. You think I wanted to get pregnant, cut the umbilical cord, nurse, and then bury him? I wanted a warrior to rise up. It's better if I had never had a baby than to go through the pain of a partially fulfilled promise. People all over the country are sitting in that space. They don't know how to interpret. Why does God have the power to start things in my life but not the power to complete them? I started this thing in my life and then I had all this vision and possibility and then it just came to a crashing halt. Elisha is mystified. He goes in there and one of the weirdest scenes in the Bible, he lays on the kid. 
mouth to mouth, torso to torso, and praise. And the Bible says his body grew warm. I'm sure that was startling. He jumped up. And the Bible says that Elisha went back and forth in the room. Why was he going back and forth? Because the body was warm. And we know that just previous to that, that Gehazi, the associate to Elisha, went and prayed for the boy, touched him with a staff, and the Bible said nothing happened. Went back and reported the child's dead. We gave it a little prayer, a little possibility, the child's dead. Elisha says, no, he lays on the boy to pray and he gets warm, which is better than being cold. And it's very easy to interpret warm as the miracle when it was originally cold. So he's going back and forth and I can imagine he's, he wants to run outside and say, we have a miracle. But the body's warm, but nothing else. And he goes back and look, wants to, goes back and forth and, Lord, seriously, this is all we get? The, the great miracle of heaven in our day is to turn the corpse into a coma, that's it? A lot of churches are very happy to be in a coma-like state because they're not like a corpse church down the street. A little warmth in our church, but I certainly wouldn't categorize it with resurrection, it's just warmth. There's no power, there's no miracles, no deliverance, no signs and wonders. It's warm, it's friendly, it's not cold and divided like the other church, so we'll just call warmth revival. Elisha goes back and it says a second time, he lays, prays, and stays. And the Bible says the kid sneezed and opened his eyes. Now we have resurrection. So church, it's wonderful to have some warmth. That's better than being cold. Being in a coma is a little more hopeful than a corpse. But don't settle into that space and call that revival in the last days. We gotta lay, stay in prayer. You gotta stay and do the same thing over and over. You gotta stay in the prayer meeting, keep asking God. You gotta repeat the acts of faith until we see, boom, the eyes open, the boy sneeze, and we have resurrection. How many want resurrection instead of warmth for your church? I want it for my life. But it's very easy to settle for warmth over resurrection. So he's talking to this woman. Elisha, go back to that verse, whose son are restored from life, saying, arise and go and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. Imagine if that was the word of the Lord for your life. Hey, just go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. There's gonna be a famine. It's gonna last for seven years. So the woman did, and she sojourned in the land of the Philistines, the land of the enemy, for seven years. Next verse, it says, after seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. She went out to appeal to the king for a land, for a field. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, hey, we got some time to kill here, Gehazi. Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. Let's tell some stories. As he was relating to the king how the Lord had restored to life the one who was dead. Now I want you to capture this. This woman, for seven years, has been sojourning. In the heart of her adult life, 
in the heart of her productive years. Sojourning for seven years. Maybe she was 35, now she's 42. My question to her would be, what have you been doing for the last seven years? Where have you been? What's happened? Nothing. Just been sojourning. I got nothing to show for seven years of my adult life. Matter of fact, I've lost momentum. Seven years ago, God was moving in my life in such a big way that it, it's still the headlines. He's telling her story after seven years. Imagine the head trip you would have inside your emotion where God was so intimately involved in your life that he's raising your kid from the dead. And then you go into this holding pattern for seven years. I see Christians all the time. They were 35, now they're 48, 13 years. They go, man, for the last 13 years, I got nothing to show for my life. Matter of fact, I lost my marriage. I lost my job. I have more debt. I've gone through an illness. Um, the la I, was, I was 30 with all this ambition. Now I'm 42 and it feels like I, I'm starting over. Man, I was 51. I was starting a business, going to start a ministry. Man, now I'm 64 and I got nothing to show for the last decade of my life. I've been sojourning wherever I could sojourn. I think there's a lot of churches in the last three years, they've been sojourning wherever they could sojourn. It's almost like the Lord said, uh, just, I don't know, go do something. Go figure it out. I got other things. Just, we'll touch base later. Seven years goes by. I remember when I was a parent, we were living in Grand Rapids. And our kids were junior in high school and early high school and maybe fifth grade through 10th grade. And mom and I needed a Saturday. So we'd just take them to the mall at eight in the morning Give them each $25 and say, listen, we'll pick you up tonight at 11. Just go figure it out. Here's 25 bucks. Go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. Mom and I need a day off. And so they'd spend the whole day sojourning through the mall. I mean, know what I'm talking about. Seven years and nothing to show for it. We chuckle. But I bet if we were to do an audit of this wonderful congregation, there's a lot of people that feel like they've been sojourning wherever they could sojourn. She comes back after seven years and she appeals to the king that, can I just have my dirt back? Can I have a do-over? I just want a fresh start. I don't care what condition it's in, man. Can I just turn back the clock? lost my business and it's difficult. It's been hung up in court for a decade. I've had this DUI hanging over me, haven't been able to get a license. I had an IRS judgment, it's been on there. I've had a court battle, battle with the doctors on medical procedure. It's taken 10 years, everything's just been on hold in some of the prime productive years of my life. I've been sojourning wherever I could sojourn in the land of the Philistines. So God, it's, 
me again. Can I just get my dirt back? Can I just, I don't care if it's overgrown, dilapidated, roof caving in. I'm older now, but I still have some life. Can I just start over? And she walks in and her story is being told. Now look what the Bible says. Please relate to me all the great things that Elijah has done. And as he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house in the field. If you could amplify the Bible, it would be, and behold, while I'm telling the king about this lady, she shows up. How crazy is that? Seven years later, and your story is still the biggest deal? It's the headline, and yet you're trying to reconcile how God would say, hey, shoo, just go for seven years. And there's no report that there was answered prayer during the sojourn. There's no miracles. She's bringing nothing back. She just has been existing for seven years. First of all, this tells us, friends, that our story, our life, never leaves the king's throne room, okay? Even though it feels like we've been out there in no person's land, no man's land, sojourning for seven years, our story, our life is directly in front of the, the king. Now we know theologically that our advocate Jesus is the one who takes our um, sin and our declared righteousness before the throne. So you've not left the presence of the king. All right, let's just kind of bring this now to a close. I'll get our musicians, if you guys would join me up on the platform. When a guest is here, doesn't it just give you hope when you see a musician come to the platform? Oh, good. There's a movement. I see a musician. I know how it works. You just Now I got you back because you realize there's, a, there, there's activity here. Now watch this, friends. In Genesis 26, Isaac is in a very similar setting as his father, Abram. Matter of fact, it looks like you're reading the same story twice in the Bible. Ahimelech, there's a famine. He lies about his wife the way his dad lied about his. He said his wife's his sister the way his dad said, because we all kind of end up in the same intersection as our parents, don't we? We all kind of come to the same spot our parents did, and we default to the family lie. This is just how our family behaves under pressure. This is the way my dad did. It's the way I did do it. So Isaac behaved like Isaac in the same point of pressure, lied about his wife being his sister. And then Isaac starts a whole series of years of just solving problems. The Philistines threw dirt in his well. He would dig a new well. Wake up the next day, dirt in the well, dig a new well. Um, uh, this was so constant. He named chapters of his life. Um, Sitna, um, and I forget, uh, 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 Essek. These seasons of adversity and struggle, I just kind of, that whole chapter of my life is struggle. That chapter was adversity. But I'm waking up every day to solve a problem. He then comes to Rehoboth, friends. And it's there that the Philistines stopped throwing dirt in his well. Because it seemed like every time he made progress, the enemy would come and steal the progress. 
And you can only do that for so long in your life without quitting. You can't just keep climbing up the hill, slide back down, climb up, slide back down, climb up, slide back down. That's kind of what Isaac was doing. He finally came to Rehoboth, which many of you know means breath or space. Mm. Finally got the letter from the judge. That nine-year battle is over. Finally. I got, I've been going back for cancer treatments and then tests and whew, 10 years of this anxiety. Breath, Rehoboth, space. No longer is the Philistines dogging your progress and throwing dirt in your well. It's a wonderful thing to come to Rehoboth. Breath, space. After seven years, she came back. And for her, the greatest thing in life would just be to start over. Because then you've been sojourning <clears throat> wherever you can sojourn for seven years. And maybe you feel like it's been 17 years or 27 years. But you're trying to figure out why God was so active in your life then. And it all went kind of radio silent. So she goes to the king and says, hey king, can I just have it back? This next verse has reshaped my life, friends, in my understanding of restoration and how the Lord works. I'm not saying the math will work exactly as it did for the woman, but the heart of the restorer, the king, is who we serve. Now watch this. The king is shocked. Is this true? Are you her? We're talking about you. And this was probably 10 years ago, because remember, famine's been going for seven. Her son being raised from the dead was before that. So somewhere between seven and probably nine to 10 years ago, they're telling that story. And you walk in wondering if anybody will even recognize you after sojourning with the Philistines for seven years. And you are the topic of conversation? amazing when we turn back to the Lord and we realize that he's never left us. And so she walks into this and he said, is this true? So the king, so she related it to him. So the king appointed her a certain officer saying, Restore, now this is the verse I don't want you to ever forget. Forget me, forget the preacher. Don't ever forget what you're about to read right here. Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land even until now. What is that telling us? While we're in seasons of sojourning where it feels like heaven has gone silent, our life is showing no productivity. There's no fruitfulness. If we are faithful to the Lord, activity is happening that's outside of our understanding. And I don't know how he'll do this, but she wasn't simply given a second chance. What was restored to her was all the productivity of the land that was happening for seven years. So while she was sojourning, her land was producing. 
And it was all given to her because when you love the Lord and when you serve the Lord, there are no lost years. No lost years. I don't know how he will deliver it to you. I don't know how he will package it. But he will deliver to you the produce of his kingdom work while we're out sojourning wherever we could sojourn but remaining faithful to God in the season. My third born, and we can all stand together here, which means we're even getting closer now. Music, standing. Now watch this. And we're going to open up these altars. Here we go, watch this. Very fast. Three kids. Oldest is Jocelyn. She married a magnificent man from Brazil. They pastor, they lead a 500 member international church in Sacramento that is just tearing it up. Second born Tyler and his wife, Nicole. They are in Houston, Texas as campus pastors at a great church called Hope City. Third born is Kramer. My youngest is Spencer, who was a great football player. He was down to Purdue playing football Purdue with Coach Tiller or going to Cal in the Pac-12 out by where we lived. And we came back here numerous times with Purdue, worked out, loved it. I still have the gear. Um, but he chose to go to Cal and play in the Pac-12. So I love West Lafayette. And um, still the coolest colors and logo, the P is the coolest in the country. I still wear my Purdue gear. And I'm not saying that because I'm preaching here. It's true. Um, but my one son I skipped over, Kramer, he was still single. Other three kids are married and having kids. He was 26 at the time. He was finishing his second master's degree. He had been in love and then broke up and in love and broke up. But he's 26 now. His siblings are all married, having kids. This girl broke up with him. And he was upstairs and he said, Dad, how come nobody wants me? And when you're a parent, you hear your kids say that at 26. So he was having that millennial freefall. I love God. I'm trying to serve God. But how come life isn't working out? He said, where's she at? My siblings, but even my younger brother now has two kids. My two older brother, older sister, each has two, three kids. I'm not even dating anybody. And he was finishing. He's a very successful kid. He was a division one quarterback, played at Portland State. Great, great quarterback. All state quarterback with Matt Barkley back in the early 2000s. He was a great player, but um, has a, two masters from Liberty University. But life wasn't unfolding. I'll never forget a night we prayed and cried. So a couple months later, and I always let my kids come back home and live if they were going to college to finish. So he was actually finishing a master. So he was at home, not because he was lazy on the couch, but I was helping him. I said, soon as you get your second degree, you're out of here, son. Uh, go. But he was home, and I saw on his laptop a picture of the White House in D.C., but there was a girl in the picture. And I said, Karen, he left his laptop on the counter, and I said, hey, look at this screensaver. 
Yeah, parents lurk. Yeah, we do. She goes, that's a picture of the White House. I said, no, honey, that's a picture of a girl with the White House in the background, not a picture of the White House with a girl in front of it. That's the girl in front of the White House. Who's the girl? He goes, no, that's a White That's sweetheart. So he came home and I said, hey, Kramer. Yeah, I wasn't stupid, but your laptop was there. Screensaver was like, oh, fuck. May have bumped up the space bar. You know, I don't know. Something came on. Who's that girl? He goes, oh, Pops, I wasn't going to tell you yet. I said, why not? He says, oh, he goes, Pops, I don't know. He goes, I met her. Uh, we had coffee at Starbucks, but I don't know, Dad. She's got a, she's got a past. A past. I said, well, son, why do you think they call us pastors? He goes, huh? I said, yeah, we help people with their past. He goes, I never knew that. I said, I didn't either. I just made it up. And I've now used it 100 times in my life. A pastor helps people reconcile their past. He goes, well, Pops. I said, what's her story? He goes, ah, she was a single mom. Okay. What's her story? Well, he wouldn't tell me. I said, okay, well, is she a witch? What's her starting point? Where, what are we dealing with here? Witchcraft, what are we doing? Well, she was a single mom. Okay, he goes twice, 16 and 19. She's pretty famous. Okay. She goes, because she went to have an abortion with the second child and took the abortion pill, got into the truck, and she just was coming to Christ, started trembling, realizing that she had just killed a life and she couldn't vomit the pill out. She was trembling and cried out to God, Help me, God, what have I done? She had the second pill that you take two days afterwards to expel the baby. So she Googled real quick on her phone and found out how to stop it and found out this obscure website in which in the Bay Area gave these injections, progesterone, and they could reverse the effects of the pill, the RU46 pill. But it has to happen immediately. So she did that. Planned Parenthood called her, said, what have you done? You have to take the second pill. She said, I'm not taking this. She says, you can't do that. You're gonna get sepsis and die. The, the, the fetus is dead. She goes, I'm, I, I don't think it is. And they just reamed her and said, you're gonna get birth to a monster. So she took the injections. Lo and behold, a heartbeat suddenly showed up. Nine months later, one of the most beautiful young men named Zachy, Zachariah is born. Only the second child recorded in the world rescued from the abortion pill. She now travels all over the world. She's, she's America's number one pro-life speaker at 28 years of age. She speaks all over the world. Millennials hate her guts. She's a precious woman. They fell in love and got married. They got married. I was on the steps of the California State Capitol where I did their wedding. Little Zachy and Eli, who were four and six, are gathered around Kramer's leg. He got on his knee and began to declare his love for these boys as their father. And I said, look at the Lord. When you were sojourning wherever you could sojourn, Kramer, wondering 
how life would turn out. God was about to give you not just the field, but a yield that you had no idea was growing. And these boys, he became, he's become their father, they have two more. But on that day of their marriage, I said, this is exactly what that woman must have felt like when the Lord restored to her, because when you love the Lord, there's no lost years. I don't know how he's going to deliver it. But today in this room, I know we already called for salvation and please those, pastor will be up here in a second, those who gave their heart to the Lord, there's gonna be some direction. But I wanna ask now this congregation, say, Pastor Scott, this is a just a prophecy to my life. I feel like a sojourner. I feel like there's some prime years of my life that have been lost because I got distracted and I'm wondering, if I'll ever get those years back, what it even looks like. But I feel like I've been sojourning wherever I could sojourn. But the Lord has given me a word from heaven, not from man, that the Lord restored the field and the yield. All seven years was given to her that she had no idea was growing. I'd like us to close our eyes and just say, Pastor, before we leave this building today, I just want to reach out to the Lord and say, that's a prophetic word for my life. I need God's grace through a sojourning season from the balcony to the bottom floor. This was a prophetic word to you. I don't care if you're a deacon, a pastor, whatever it is. You've just been sojourning and you just have been wondering where all of this is headed, what it's all meant. Would you just put a hand up and say, that's me. I've just been in a sojourning season. Keep it up. Keep it up. Wow. 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 Keep it up. Please don't put that hand down. I know this is an altar church. We're going to hit the first note of this song. Trust me, you're not alone. I'm going to say there's probably 50 to 75 people that have their hand up. I just want you to step out from the balcony to the bottom floor. I just want us to come across the front here to say, Lord, I'm just going to humble myself. Lord, thank you. You're giving me grace through a sojourner season. And I just want to pray with you while we worship. You can start to come right now, right now with your hands up. Just say, man, I've been walking through a sojourning season in my life. And I'm trying to make sense. And I need God's grace. And I need his power. Power, uh, to visit my life right now. And I, I just welcome the yield, not just the field, not just to start a do-over, but Lord, Lord is going to restore. I don't know how he will deliver it, but he's going to give you in his restorer's heart the things that have been going on with you we're, we're unaware of that are happening. God's going to meet you today. Worship team, lead us out. And uh, pastor, I'll let you kind of lead. You know the culture here. Uh, people can kind of come in around and pray. Anybody else would say, man, I've been go through that sojourner season and I just need the Lord's help and grace uh, to, to get through this to receive from the Lord today. It's all yours. God bless you guys. Thank you again. Let me just say thank you again for letting me preach, Pastor. I'm so gracious, so gracious. Come by out there for a hug. God bless you guys.